0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, Joan Walsh of The Nation says it shouldn't have been this close. And our film critic, Ella Taylor, will talk about the terrific Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit, about the rise of a proto-feminist chess champion in Cold War America. But first, today's political update. For that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, we are speaking on Thursday morning. At this hour, Biden still needs one or two more states in order to be declared a winner. We are told that he is likely to win the Pennsylvania vote and maybe one or two more, maybe later today. So let's just say Biden seems likely to be declared the winner and take it from there. Uh, some of our friends are saying this is a historic repudiation of Trump. Biden is getting the largest vote total in American history, more than 73 million votes. And he's also above He's the only Democrat to do that in the last 60 years, except for Obama. So historic victory is one school of thought. But then we have our friends who say the glass is half empty. Trump got more votes than last time. That is horrible. We don't have the Senate, it seems. Well,
1: regrettably, I guess I'm a, I'm a half-empty guy uh, uh, because, uh, first of all, simply losing the Senate, which will probably remain theoretically possible to win it uh, after uh, runoff elections in Georgia in early January, but uh, I am not wildly optimistic about the Democrats winning uh, uh, winning uh, Georgia's uh, Senate seats. Losing the Senate uh, creates a legislative paralysis for, for the Biden agenda or any uh, democratic agenda, though there are, as we can discuss, many things a president can do by uh, executive order. What the election showed, I think, was that while a majority of Americans do repudiate Trump, uh, that uh, that repudiation really extends to perhaps a little over 50% of a very expanded electorate, while uh, Trump remained very strong in uh, the America that uh, watches Fox News. And and that strength is registered somewhat in the legislative, uh, relative legislative victories that the Republicans won uh, in this election, uh, uh, taking some Democratic House seats and probably retaining their hold on the Senate. Uh, I mean I, I, I think what what this reflects is that blue areas are getting bluer that there's some change in upper middle class uh, college educated white voters who previously have gone Republican, but that you know the red areas are are very red and and not the, the color is not diminishing so, I, I think it's a little better than a standoff, but it is not a, a historic repudiation that, you know, we certainly hoped the election would deliver.
0: I'd like to focus with you for a minute on uh, on Miami-Dade County. Uh, you and I both uh, thought that the referendum on a $15 minimum wage would put Biden over the top. Uh, and that there's an A result that I hadn't anticipated, the $15 minimum wage passed in Florida and Biden lost. This means it has to mean that a lot of people in Florida voted for the $15 minimum wage for Trump, even though Trump is, you know, for Trump, $15 minimum wage is anathema. He, you know, he stiffs his employees. He doesn't want to give them higher wages. So. what what happened here? Well, two things. First of all, just just, uh, to add to this,
1: uh, in order to pass, the $15 minimum wage didn't need a simple majority. It needed 60% and it got it. So uh, if if anything, this contradiction you have just uh, pointed to is, is actually stronger. But we've seen this before. A lot of red states, when ballot measures have come before them, raising the minimum wage, they have voted for it and also, you know, continue to elect Republican officials. So, I mean, this, this leads us to a couple of conclusions. One, that when they're voting on elected officials, in many ways, it's not the economic dimensions of this that is perhaps the primary factor in, in shaping their vote. And two, there are a lot of Republicans are basically okay with a progressive economic uh, agenda, like uh, taxing the rich more. The polling shows there's substantial support for that among the Republican rank and file. But nonetheless, nonetheless, that's not the factor that shapes their votes. I I tweeted at some point, looking at all of this, that uh, in terms of Miami-Dade in particular, that the enduring contribution of Fidel Castro May have been to have turned uh, Florida Republican. One, one of history's <laughs> many man. ironies. Oh,
0: man, yeah, let's talk about this Senate situation a little more. We we had been led to believe by the polls that uh, we were going to win uh, control of the Senate. So so we lost. We needed at least three, maybe four. And we got two. The big one we lost was in North Carolina. Cal Cunningham, who got a ton of money, an un- unbelievable, unprecedented amount of money, did not uh, did not win. We had some hopes in Iowa. We had... How do you understand the unexpected defeats Democrats suffered in the Senate? Well, a couple of things.
1: First of all, uh, as, as sort of a corollary to all of this, the Validity and value of polling is, is been severely called into question uh, by everything in this election. So that that looms over pretty much all of our uh, all of our disappointments because the polling you know generally suggested this is going to be a much more democratic uh, electoral result than than we've seen. Uh, secondly, there is really a link, and uh, the Atlantic's Ron Brownstein has been making this clear. Uh, over the years, there's really a link between uh, when a Senate election is up in a presidential election year, there is uh, increasingly a link between how the presidential candidate does and how the Senate candidate of his or her own party does. Uh, In other words, there's very little ticket splitting out there. And so polls that suggested that uh, Biden was leading in Iowa Uh, uh, you know, uh, also suggested that Teresa Greenfield, the uh, Democratic Senate candidate, was leading in Iowa. Uh, You know, and in fact, uh, the Iowa uh, results followed the, uh, uh, were, were the same on both the senatorial and the presidential line. Trump won handily and Joni Ernst won handily. And we've seen pretty much the same thing in every state except Maine, which is a weird state, uh, where Susan Collins uh, did, uh, you know, significantly better than Donald Trump and and won the state. Of course, you know, Collins was the only Republican senator who refused to say whether she was voting for Trump. Uh, had she said that, you know, that might have uh, led to a different outcome. So that, that that's an exception, but not a total exception. And then, as you point out, Democrats threw a ton of money at Senate candidates who not only you know lost but came close like Cal Cunningham, but lost and lost big like uh, uh, M.J. Hager in uh, in Texas, like the above mentioned uh, Teresa Greenfield, like Amy McGrath, who never stood a chance against uh, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. Um, you know uh, the money continued to go uh, to a host of these candidates who were improbables to begin with. Um, and uh, again, misleading polling, though even in some cases, in, in the Kentucky case, there was never anything in recent months that, that showed that Amy McGrath had a chance against, uh, uh, against Mitch McConnell. So um, there are a lot of factors here. And there's one other factor. And that is that the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, which, for which the real head is Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, pretty much anointed the Democratic nominees. Once Schumer essentially picked them, uh, so much money came to them that uh, effectively everyone else was driven out of a democratic primary. and they didn't have to really prove themselves in a primary. And that, 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 that I think in hindsight is a very questionable system because it didn't uh, you know because it, it, it doesn't sound right A. and B, it doesn't really go along with small D democratic principles and C. It didn't produce any, uh, you know, any successful results.
0: Let me go back to the polling, which you uh, raised. You remember last week we talked about the Washington Post poll that had uh, Biden winning Wisconsin by 17 points. And in the end, he's going to win by 23,000, you know, less than 1%. You know, and I said to you, could this be a typo? And you said, they say it's, you know, it's what they found. Two things about polling. Number one in the midterm elections of two years ago, the polls were exactly right. They picked, uh, they, it was gonna be a big democratic turnout. It was gonna be a wave election. So they sometimes they are exactly right and sometimes they're way off. I think the way off, the problem when they're way off is uh, the science of polling depends on a very subjective judgment of who is a likely voter. Of course, pollsters write PhD theses on this. They've been studying this for 50 years. The idea, the the basic idea is the likely voter is somebody who's voted before. So if you say you're for Trump, but you didn't vote for him last time, you're not put in the likely voter box. Trump got a lot of those people who hadn't voted in the past to vote for him this time. I don't know how the pollsters can figure this one out, but I think that is where they're gonna be looking, they're gonna to have to change their definition of likely voter on the basis of the experience they've just had.
1: Well, yeah, uh, I'm I'm reminded of Donald Rumsfeld's distinction between known unknowns and unknown unknowns. <laughs> Excellent. And they've been sort of classifying the voters you're talking about as unknown unknowns, whereas they should have told, considered they were known unknowns and, and, and done some shifting. Well, what we don't know also, is how much they suffered from what historically has been called the Bradley effect, where in uh, the gubernatorial election in California in 1982, uh, the Democratic African-American mayor of Los Angeles uh, was leading in all the polls, Tom Bradley, but who ended up on election day losing to the Republican uh, nominee, uh, George Duke Majan. And uh, the the post-election remorse and analysis was that uh, people, <laughs> some people were embarrassed to say they were uh, voting for Duke magin because it might make them look racist. And I wonder, you know, to what extent some of the polling error uh, this time around was a result of an equivalent uh, equivalent embarrassment about saying you were voting for Trump or just, you know, hostility to pollsters. So you're not saying you're voting for Trump, but you are.
0: A new topic. Let us assume That the Democrats do not win both seats in the Georgia uh, runoff on January 5th, is it? Yes. And that the Republicans retain control of the Senate. The Prospect magazine at Prospect.org, the magazine for which you are editor-at-large, has done a magnificent job on a day one agenda for President Biden, things he can do that do not require a vote of Congress. Uh, we all sort of have a vague concept of, well, there's executive actions, and Trump has used a lot of executive actions to do terrible things. But it turns out there's a lot more to this, and you guys have figured this out. So tell us tell us about the, the day one agenda that doesn't require the Senate.
1: Well, first of all, all praise to our executive editor, David Dayan, who cooked this thing up. I I edited a number of the pieces, but it was David's idea. There are a lot of things that President Biden would have executive authority to do big things like mandating uh, substantially lower drug prices, like forgiving uh, a great deal of student debt, like allowing importation of cheap drugs from Canada, like restore, obviously, uh, restoring uh, the DACA uh, program and such. So, that, I mean, that's just a, a sprinkling, but there are a lot of really major things that a president can do by executive order. And uh, various points, these have been recommended by progressive Democrats like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Some of the things I suggested were, were part of their platforms. But, you know, these are things that Joe Biden can do. And that, that only begins to lift. I mean, the restoration of postal banking, for instance could quite possibly be done under uh, under some post office legislation that already exists.
0: Also on the list, uh, let me just read a few of these. Break up the big banks. This is something the president can do without a vote of Congress. I'm amazed to hear this. Force divestment from fossil fuel projects. Close a whole bunch of tax loopholes. Mandate reductions of greenhouse gas emissions. Make it easier for workers to join a union. It turns out some of these are within the purview of the executive, any uh, de novo, and in other cases, Congress has given the executive branch the power to do things exactly. And a
1: lot of these things have sort of lain fallow, uh, lay fallow for uh, for decades, but they're on the books. I mean, I think if if, if I may, that was one of the particular. Uh, achievements of our day one agenda project was going to some experts who knew what it was that Congress had passed in 1922 that has just uh, you know, been sitting there uh, and uh, it is still law. So uh, yes, there is a lot that a president can do. And I strongly recommend that people wondering, uh, gosh, what can Joe Biden do if the Republican, if, if, if Mitch McConnell still controls the Senate, should go to www.prospect.org. Uh, uh, type in "Day One Agenda"
0: and you will find like twenty articles. Fantastic, fantastic work. I wanted to talk to you about California results. We've talked about the president and the Senate and the, uh, but California, you know, sixth biggest economy in the world. California had an election. There were statewide referenda. There were congressional seats. What do you see? Uh, as, as the most important things that happen in California on Tuesday. Well,
1: as, as we speak, uh, some of these are still up in the air. California, yeah. you know, usually takes a long time tallying its massive votes. I suspect, by the way, by the time all the votes are tallied, California will rank number one among the states and highest percentage of, uh, of, of Biden voters. Uh, right now, I think it's second to Massachusetts, but there's still like a third of the vote out, and uh, uh, I think that's a disproportionately Democratic vote. Uh, on the On the referendum, the uh, ballot measures, it's 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 a mixed bag. It remains to be seen whether uh, Proposition Fifteen, which would essentially repeal uh, a big chunk of Proposition Thirteen from 1978. Uh, and allowing uh, the government to reassess commercial property at its current value, rather than its 1978 value, or whenever the last uh, ownership change occurred. Uh, it's narrowly trailing. I think it could well win, though. And that's, that's a very big change for, uh, uh, for California. Uh, the gazillion dollars, actually a little more than $200 million that the uh, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash spent uh, uh, to avoid having to pay their workers a minimum wage and give them benefits. They they kind of swamp the opposition there by massive spending, which is sort of predictable. I mean, the great irony about California initiatives is they were conceived in the uh, progressive era of 1911 and thereabouts, uh, as a way to avoid money's domination of lawmaking because the Southern Pacific Railroad essentially controlled the legislature. Now money dominates the initiative process, too. Uh, so it's uh, it's one of the unfortunate, uh, unfortunate ironies. But, you know, I think Democrats are going to hold their own when all the votes are counted on congressional races.
0: And let me ask specifically about L.A. County, the most populist county in America, the most democratic county in America. We have some significant results in in L.A. County.
1: We do. Um, uh, In in perhaps the most important criminal justice-related election in the country, uh, a criminal justice reformer, George Gascon, former DA of San Francisco, beat the incumbent, Jackie Lacey, which is a real victory for this new generation of DAs who uh, have a a much less draconian uh, approach to uh, a whole host of of crime issues. Also, I was delighted to see that Holly Mitchell, who has been in many ways the most progressive legisl- state legislator for for many years, was elected uh, to the County Board of Supervisors. Uh, this really gives Los Angeles, LA County, home to 10 million people, the most progressive gr- group of county supervisors ever. They're all women, by the way, for the first time. Uh, Holly Mitchell is an African American woman. This is also. I got to point out the first time I think that the county board of supervisors has been well to the left of LA city government, even though the county is not as true blue democratic as the city 4 million people live in the city 10 million in the county.
0: And let me also say a word about uh, Proposition J, these, these anonymous sounding uh, initiatives for LA County. This is kind of the best version of defund the police. It will, it, it passed, it will shift resources from the police and jail to treatment, housing, and other services to assist people in crises and deflect them from unnecessarily unnecessary criminalization. It is a really impressive victory for the Black Lives Matter movement, which is able to combine politics and protest in a way that very few protest movements that focus on the streets have been able to do. Uh, that combined with getting George Gascon elected is really a huge achievement for the world of Black Lives Matter and rethinking all of criminal justice. And part of that was a statewide uh, referendum. Prop 20 was defeated. This was the police and the prison guards initiative to uh, roll back criminal justice reforms that had been passed by the state legislature. And the fact it, it had a very misleading campaign, but the fact that Prop 20 was defeated and that L.A. County passed this much smarter version of defund the police. This is really the kind of the culmination of our, our summer of protest. Uh, and we salute Black Lives Matter for being able to negotiate politics as well as uh, as protest. We, and of course, there's also Prop 17, which restores the rights of parolees to vote, another part of this agenda.
1: We sure do. And And Black Lives Matter was probably... Uh, however, you pronounce it, the sine qua non. I mean, with, with they were the ones who kind of prepared uh, the groundwork uh, for George Gascon's victory. They they uh, uh, just uh, n- you know noted uh, <laughs> very effectively uh, the the prosecutorial policies of Jackie Lacey, who was the incumbent that Gascon defeated. They protested uh, her her decisions. Yes, this was street smarts and political smarts in a way in which, unfortunately, they are seldom combined. And very fortunately, they've been combined in Los Angeles and California.
0: In one last thing, let's just look for a minute at the progressive initiatives that passed in other places. We've talked about the $15 minimum wage getting a supermajority in Florida. Also, Colorado voted for paid family and medical leave. Nebraska reduced consumer loan interest rates. Arizona is going to tax the rich to pay for education and marijuana was legalized in a whole bunch of states that are red states. What do you make of all of these victories?
1: Well, again, uh, since they're red states, th- 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 this this shows a kind of divorce between bread and butter issues, although I don't know that marijuana quite <laughs> <if> that comes into <laughs> that heading, for uh, some. And, uh, uh, and political voting. Uh, and, you know, I, I w- one of the things that it, it demonstrates is that Democrats need to be very clear about where they are on these bread and butter issues and uh, hope that that has, uh, has some impact.
0: I think we've talked about just about everything. Harold Meyerson, thanks so much. It's always great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Now it's time to speak with Joan Walsh. Of course, she's the nation's national affairs correspondent and a political commentator for CNN. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. Well, we're speaking on Wednesday afternoon. You've been telling us for months that it would take several days before we knew for sure who the winner was. And you're certainly right about that. We don't yet have decisions at this hour about several key states Biden must win. But at this hour, it looks like Biden is likely to prevail in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, maybe more. And that should make him president. But but it feels so much like Four years ago, the same states are voting the same way. The only difference is the states that Trump won by just a little. Now Biden is going to win by just a little. For me, it's too much déjà vu. I wonder if you have the same feeling. Oh my God, I so
2: do. I totally do. I mean, last night was really hard, and I forced myself to go to bed at about two. And and even then, I, I I believe he will win. I do. Um, And I woke up at like five or six and I watched again. And and it's like, I believe he will win, but it's going to be so close and it shouldn't be close. I mean, and we've all been luxuriating in these polling numbers that showed him winning Texas and, you know, just winning everything and it, we all got a, a little comfortable i guess i mean i tried not to and i tried to i tried to resist that but you know to see it be this close it should not be this close
0: four years ago we were shocked and horrified but we came up with this i this understanding that for especially for white working class people in oh, yeah. the upper midwest who the Democrats really hadn't changed their lives very much at all. And their attitude was, you know, let's give the other guy a chance. He claims to be interested in us. Let's see what he can do. But now they've seen for four years they saw what he could do. They saw that he co- was complete disaster with the covid epidemic. They've seen they, the, the they're highest they're unemployment gone. rate since uh, the 30s. And most of them are still voting for him. And that's that's very hard for us to take.
2: It is. I mean, can I just say what I said back then? I think it's mostly racism. I think he was the first presidential candidate to actually appeal to people on the basis of white nationalism. You know, people don't like the word racism, but white nationalism. We had not we'd never seen that before. I mean, Mitt Romney was kind of awful and played along with Trump's birtherism. You know, I wrote about that in my book like he literally made trump more of a figure by courting his endorsement but trump was the first person to say i see you white nationalists white people who feel under siege by this wave of color not the blue wave but the you know multiracial wave i see you and i'm here for you and we'd never had a a a, a Republican like that. And we got one and he won. And he's not going to win again. I mean, John, I hope I'm right. I hope I'm right. It's very close. It should not be this close, as I wrote today in The Nation. But I don't think he's going to win. But it's going to go on for a while. And it's because he, he appealed to this feeling that even though I wrote that book about white people, I had no idea it was this prevalent. And I'm so shocked by this election result.
0: Well, let me try out on you, John Nichols' response to this. Uh, John (laughs) John Nichols says... Joe Biden already has more than 70 million votes. That's the largest number of votes for a president in American okay. history. Okay. He he may end up with four or five million more votes than Trump. He's also second major fact. He's also above 50 percent. This is very unusual in our lifetime. Hillary only got 48. Obama really is the only Democrat who's ever gotten above 50 percent. In our lifetime, in our our lifetime. Bill Clinton never got close to 50 percent. So. So this is a big victory. The most votes any president has ever gotten. The first Democrat to get over 50 percent since since. And the only other one in addition to Obama. There's only one thing that makes it not a big victory. And that's the Electoral College. That's where it's close. That's our problem. That's what we have to change. Right.
2: Well, you know, I love John Nichols, and he literally called me this morning to bust (laughs) me up. I think he's going to win. If he wins, he'll win the Electoral College, too. But, you know, if we don't win the Senate, if Democrats don't win the Senate, that will be also really deflating. I mean, there's so much about this that is deflating because 235,000 people have died. What do we have to do to call attention to that. And thousands of families at the border have been separated. What do we have to do to call attention to that? What did we not do? And I have people texting me and emailing me, and I'm just not writing them back, who are like, oh, Biden should have done this and that. But I think that Biden and, and, and Kamala Harris did, did a lot of it, did most of it. I hope we can call them a minority but a really, really entrenched, sad, desperate, horrible minority. Um, The people who came out, who goes to the Mario Cuomo Bridge in New York and, you know, stops traffic, who drives a Biden Harris bus off the road, who goes to Marin City, which is the only tiny pocket of black people in Marin. The the Trump people did that. So, you know, we. I feel like we're lucky we didn't see that much of that. But I think we're going to win. But it's still going to be such a narrow win. It's going to be very, very hard to deal with.
0: So you mentioned the Senate. You know, we have to talk about the Senate. The Democrats needed three. We got Colorado and Arizona. We lost the one. The other ones we were hoping for North Carolina, where we spent a fortune. I know Uh, we had hopes for Iowa. Seems likely that the fate of the Senate will depend on a special election in Georgia. In January, you've spent a lot of time in Georgia. Tell us about Georgia and what's going on there, which, by the way, at this hour, the New York Times needle is still pointing in the Biden direction.
2: Really? I didn't even I don't look. I didn't look at the needle. I don't I hate the needle <laughs> the After, four years ago. But thank you for looking. Well, I still think that. We can do it in Georgia. I mean, I've been in touch with the Assoff people, and there are a lot of votes out in Atlanta. There are a lot of votes out in Atlanta. And, and let me just say
0: Ossoff, Ossoff is challenging Purdue. Purdue. And that's that we could win outright, which would be great. Right. It's the other one, the the open seat that's likely to go. With
2: Reverend Warnock. But, you know, well, not but. Yes, it, that's almost certainly going to go to a runoff. Well, it matters a lot if if, if Ossoff wins. Although, if, if Ossoff also goes to runoff, because both things will happen. If there's, you know, if Ossoff did, doesn't quite do it, he'll go to a runoff. And I would like to be around for a January 5th race in Georgia because screw COVID, I would be <laughs> down there. You know, I think Dem- all Democrats would be
0: focused on on that so and let's talk about the money here north carolina the two candidates spent 242 million dollars on tv ads you can imagine what's going to happen in the if in a georgia runoff 242 million million is going to be you know they'll probably spend twice that much money money is just totally out of control in our politics don't you think
2: it is. And you know, what I when when I talk to the people that I write about, which is mainly state legislative candidates and their managers, they're not about TV. They're about getting people out. They're about going door to door. And that is, you know, maybe we will find that when we really look at this race, that it was a big problem that our people couldn't go door to door. But I think, you know, if if we go to a runoff in Georgia, I think there will be more door to door. And, you know, I don't think anyone can prove anything about, you know, the results of TV. I just think we've got a lot of consultants, as you well know, who get a piece of TV. And so they, you know, they're the manager, they're the campaign manager, they're the this manager. And they're like, yeah, let's do we've got this great ad, and we've got this great package for you. And I I don't see it working. And we certainly didn't see it working in North Carolina.
0: In the one state where there was uh, a significant uh, door-to-door effort, Arizona, where Unite Here did yeah. send thousands of people door-to-door, they showed it can be done. They they wore masks and, and face shields. They distributed masks to the people they were talking to. Arizona is looking very good for uh, for for the Democrats. So there's a model there. Yes. And I'm so excited about Arizona
2: and unite here. I mean, I you know, that is one of the great spots of last night and there will be more. I mean, you know, it's just too early to be as downhearted as I am. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I'm glad to hear you say that because your whole message for the last month has been, it's going to take a few days and, you know, be patient. Know. And don't and get then, excited.
2: <laughs> but then, you know, in the last few days, people have been like, we might know by Tuesday night. And I, I got into that, you know, John, I'm, I'm normal. I'm just an instant gratification <laughs> person. So if you promise me it's going to happen, I'm going to be there.
0: But yeah, well, I I went back to those polls, Wisconsin polls, um, the final Wisconsin polls, New York Times poll rated A plus by Nate Silver said Biden was ahead by 11 among 11. likely voters. The Washington Post poll rated A plus by Nate Silver said Biden was ahead by 17 in Wisconsin. Yeah, was going to win by about twenty three thousand votes. Twenty three
2: thousand yeah. people in Milwaukee who stood out <laughs> in the cold. My my high school friends. <laughs> what are we going to do when we we can't trust the polls in two years or four years? I mean, they were better in 2018. And what does that mean? You know, 20 the, the midterm polls predicted a pretty big Democratic win. And that's what happened. And these polls predicted a huge Democratic win and not just presidential, but the Senate and also the House. I mean, Dave Wasserman of Redistrict, I'm not calling him out because I don't like him or I think he's bad. He's great. But he was like, the House, you know, they're going to, Democrats are going to pick up like 15 House seats. So what happened there? So that is going to be a whole different story in terms of how we cover these races in the next year or four. I I just don't know. It just, it makes no sense to me.
0: Joan Walsh, she told us to wait and she was right about that. Joan, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thanks, John. I'm going to try to listen to my own advice.
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Just in case you'd like to turn away from watching Trump and the election aftermath, just in case you'd like to find something not just diverting, but absorbing on TV. For that, we turn to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer at the L.A. Weekly the new york times and npr.org ella welcome back thank you john well tell us about something on tv that's not just diverting but absorbing
3: well in fact you turned me on to the queen's gambit which is playing on netflix at, at the moment and i'm delighted that you did because i became i, I watched it there are seven episodes it's, it's being called a miniseries but it's quite a long one Um, And I watched it on two evenings, polished it off because it's so good. (laughs) It's based on a, it's taken from a novel by Walter Tevis who also wrote the novel of The Hustler and The Color of Money. So we're talking very high pedigree here. And the screenwriter and director is Scott Frank, who in movies has mostly been known um, as a screenwriter. He made the wonderful, he wrote the wonderful Out of Sight, George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, um, and also Get Shorty based on the Elmore Leonard novel. So there we have a very high pedig- pedigree to, and it really shows. It's three different things. One is it's a trauma drama. Uh, the second is it's an addiction drama. And the third is it's a chess drama. Now, I could not be less interested in chess, which was rammed down our throats in most British... Secondary schools, <laughs> um, but that makes no difference at all. Usually, these three types of drama, uh, where you see they pop up in a TV movie, but nothing could be further than from that here. Um, it's very character driven, and it stars the British American Argentine actress Anya Taylor Joy, who is absolutely marvelous as the young chess prodigy, Beth Harmon. She may be known to some of our listeners if they saw the wonderful um, The Witch, which was a period horror movie, an indie movie, in which she was also very good. She has an incredibly distinctive look, um, which is that she's very beautiful, and she also looks a bit like a cabbage patch doll. <laughs>
1: um,
3: she's just lovely looking, but she's playing a person who is absolutely internally convulsed with fury. And so she has this wonderful, intense, empty gaze. This is a young woman, uh, we're introduced to her in 1967 um, and 68 when she is gearing up for the World um, Chess Championships. And that's a pivotal year, but this series is not played as that 60s miniseries at all. She's leading a very different kind of life. Her mother died uh, under tragic and very difficult circumstances when she was a little girl, and uh, she's sent to an orphanage because her father is not interested and not present. Um, it's an orphanage from hell, but not in the Dickens um <laughs> sense. Um, right. It's all very civilized, except that the kids are being fed tranquilizers, which um, leads to a addiction to pills. But two very positive things happen to um, this, this girl in the orphanage. One is she's befriended by um, an African-American, somewhat older girl named Jolene, who's marvelously played by a young woman named Moses Ingram, Um, who shields and protects and encourages her in a very profane kind of a way. And the other is that the caretaker of the orphanage, um, who's played by the wonderful character actor, Bill Camp, spends most of his time in the basement where she observes him one day when she's sent to clean the erasers, playing chess by himself. And gradually, she convinces him to play with her, and he teaches her a great deal. But he also gives her a kind of life script um, that comes to define the plot of this, which is that he says to her, you've got your gift, and you've got what it costs. And that is what this mini series is about. She is absolutely brilliant. She can win an entire chess game in her head and she beats him uh, at chess, sorry. (laughs) Um, And then she is adopted by perhaps a little improbably as an older child, she's pretty much a teenager by this time, by a wealthy suburban family. And the woman who plays her adoptive mother Uh, is Marielle Heller, the director of A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood and also uh, The Diary of a Teenage Girl, and she's absolutely marvellous. The mother is a whacking great alcoholic um, and not a mother in anybody's traditional sense, but gradually they form an alliance when (coughs) Beth starts making serious money um, playing in chess tournaments. And they have a pretty good life together, especially as this mother has been, you know, horribly emotionally abused by her husband and uh, has been kept at home, suddenly discovers living. Uh, The two of them discover living. Um, And then some bad things happen and she's cast out again. uh, But she continues to play chess, um, because it's the place where she feels safe and in control. This the thing about the miniseries is just every time you think that you know exactly where this story is going, it confounds you with another twist in the action in the serp- the plotting is extraordinarily serpentine in a very satisfying way. It's also a period visual confection. I mean, her dresses, Beth's dresses are absolutely to die for. They, uh, they're they very true to the period as seen by a whole bunch of London designers. So they look like a combination of Art Deco and Carnaby Street. Um, <laughs> She has bright red hair, and again, she has this very intense, cold gaze, um, and gradually we learn the production design is is a combination of yellow, orange, and black. It's just gorgeous, even though uh, there's some very horrible wallpaper in people's (laughs) homes in this this, uh, mini-series. And they do some amazing visual tricks with chessboards that just make it an absolute treat. There is great sadness. um, And it's also very funny in some ways. But this is a story without giving away too much. It is a very American story that's all about winning, but tucked away inside that. It's also a story about somebody arriving at a place and creating a world where she feels safe and in control.
0: And I would add, it's it's kind of a proto-feminist story in that her she is smarter than all the boys, and she knows that she's smarter than all the boys, and she doesn't make a big deal of it, but she's just sort of, she's a very internal person, as as you've said. So, she's not like struggling for the rights of women. It's just that she embodies a kind of feminine power that's unique in the world, really. There were no women chess champions at least in the West at that at at that point. So it's sort of fascinating to see her deal with the boys, the boys in the high school, the boys in the chess world. Chess is a completely masculine thing. And, you know, people don't think she's going to make it. And then she ends up with this sort of gang of guys who who are her backup and her buddies and who support her. And that's a kind of a delightful uh, part of it, too, who are sort of in her corner. And and that takes takes me to my second point. You, you, you rightly said it's a it's a trauma film, it's an addiction story, it's a coming of age story. So it's also a sports story. I mean it's done like big boxing, the big boxing champion, you know, you gotta psych out your your the the world heavyweight champion. These are people who live for chess. There's nothing else in their lives. And it's a little bit like these you know, crazy baseball fans or something like that. Remember the World Series of 1960. Remember the home run that the Yankees hit in game, you know, seven. They have that same mentality. But I, for one, never thought of it as part of the world of chess. And I think the writer who you said wrote uh, The Hustler brings that same kind of sports movie vibe to this unusual, indeed, unique setting.
3: And, of course, it's also a Cold War drama, especially towards the end There's some absolutely marvellous episodes because she has to go to Moscow, just um, a wangle away into going to Moscow because she loses her funding from a, a, an evan- evangelical Christian backing who want her to um, make a speech against communism and she ends up playing the champion of the world and he's a even though he hardly moves a muscle um, he's played by an east european i think they're probably polish actor whose name i can't bend my (laughs) my mouth around and he is also you know i mean he says she's a survivor like us But he doesn't talk very much. And uh, at the end, he proves himself a total mensch. And she refuses just equally to be a pawn of the FBI, who also want her to do some espionage and and so on. And it's all delightfully done. It's partly funny, and it's also a great suspense thing. It's a wonderful score, which is composed of pop songs from the era. I was delighted that one of my favorite songs – Peggy Lee's Fever um, figures prominently, but also uh, some original music that is just understated, doesn't cue your feelings, um, but is really wonderful. I should say, by the way, that this was co-written with Alan Scott.
0: I looked up Anya Taylor-Joy, and the the latest news about her is that she is doing A Mad Max prequel where she will be playing the Angelina Jolie role. So she is about to move into big budget international stardom. I would rather see her playing chess, frankly, but I guess that's what it means to have a, a, a big career in Hollywood.
3: Yes, and I, I have a feeling that she's probably, she's a very intelligent actress, which is, as we see from from this series. And I think that uh, she will probably choose that career very smartly, is my guess.
0: So we've been talking about The Queen's Gambit, seven episodes on Netflix, not just diverting, but absorbing. Wanted also to ask you about a documentary called Us Kids, which is kind of important.
3: Yes, and it was it was free on Election Day um, for reasons that will become clear. Obviously, it's too late for that now, but you can find it at uh, Alamo Drafthouse draft house uh, virtual, <laughs> uh, virtual cinema which I think works a little bit like uh, Kino which we've mentioned along there is that you go there and you buy a ticket and they are well worth supporting because their cinemas are obviously hurting if not uh, on the skids it's a documentary about the Parkland kids who uh, endured a terrible school shooting in in Florida as everybody knows and this is about their trip about the March for Our Lives that they organized, um, I think with some help from their teachers and parents, but not that much, where they traveled across America to uh, militate uh, for gun control and uh, to try to get people not to vote for politicians uh, who were taking money from the NRA. Now, they've had an awful lot of news coverage already, especially uh, two of their leaders, Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg. Uh, But this documentary does something interesting. They are both, you know, fairly prominently featured in the movie, and Emma Gonzalez in particular is the most extraordinarily articulate young woman. And we also see her very differently in in this documentary because it's actually quite a joyful movie um, about their... their their march. But, you know, so often we see her in tears making speeches and she hates that, you know, she's just gone way past that. And David Hogg, who's, uh, you know, took a great deal of abuse um, because he made some offhand comment about being rejected from a bunch of colleges, but he's actually shown as a very intelligent young man here. But the movie doesn't focus... Primarily on them. It focuses on a third leader in the March for Our Lives, a, a young teenage woman named Samantha Fuentes, who calls herself Sam and is known for that. She is not as not nearly as smooth or polished as the other two. Um, she's extremely emotional uh, when she gets before when she has to make a speech. She throws up several times, but she is a very powerful and unusual spokeswoman. Um, She comes from a a working class family, and her version of being articulate is very different from the other two. And she, you know, we come to really care for her as this group travels across America. It's not easy for her to do what she has to do, but audiences adore her. She's a wonderful mother. Um, she has a wonderful mother, and all of them are uh, show themselves uh, to be very smart, sophisticated, and grown up. I was very interested in how they interacted with detractors, and indeed with hecklers and intimidators from the far right and from gun owners. I'm sure they got some training, but they handle themselves far better than a lot of adults uh, in refusing to get riled up. I'm sure there were occasions when they also did. But these are young people to model oneself on. They really are. um, And it's in the, I've obviously timed the release of this documentary to the election in the hope that it will um, galvanize a lot of young young people, especially new voters, who we know have um, traditionally not bothered to vote. So well worth seeing, Um, they helped essentially to get Scott Walker and Dana Rohrabacher out of office. So that is a pretty monumental achievement and and it's wonderful to watch them navigate both the adoration of crowds and also the the considerable abuse that they take.
0: Yeah, I've only seen uh, the trailer for Us Kids, but just seeing a little bit of the clip of, Emma Gonzalez is the one with the really short hair. And it
3: was not anymore.
0: Not anymore. But we remember her from the Washington rally. And they have just like a I don't know, like a eight second clip of that. And I get choked up all over again. There's just something about the intensity that she brings to this that's just overwhelming. So it's yes to me that there's some other people who are you know equally interesting and important
3: you just reminded me that there's a lovely little scene there where she's signing autographs to a crowd of little kids and one little girl comes up dressed exactly like her <laughs> um a latina kid who's got her head shaved and so on and it's just so sweet i'm I'm a born sucker (laughs) Uh, you can be seen um, at the alamo draft house virtual cinema
0: and i have a follow-up about um, a tv series that we talked about a couple of months ago we are what we are Luca Guadagnino series on HBO about black and white teenagers uh, living on an American military base in Italy and dealing with identity and sexuality. It had its finale on Sunday night. It's The finale was amazing and surprising and wonderful. I don't want to talk too much about the plot. You know, from the beginning, we said the show was about the fluidity of desire and the recklessness of youth. Actually, that's a phrase from Manuel Betancourt at Vulture.com. But I'm not sure there's been anything on TV like the finale. So I just want to remind people about we are what we are on HBO. As one of the characters says, don't act like you didn't know.
3: Sounds intriguing. Yeah.
0: I recommend it. Ella Taylor, our TV critic. Thanks so much for talking with us today.
3: Thank you, John. So nice to get off hooks and, uh, and nerves.
0: Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.